please join me in welcoming back Professor Paul Lips to uh, cloudy and uh, overcast Orange County, California. Thank you. Well, I must tell you that I'm delighted to see you all. Ari's been trying to keep you away. So the fact that you didn't worry about him and just came was delightful. The topic that I'm speaking about today has an unusual introduction. Uh, and that is I want to spend a few minutes speaking about the Middle East generally, just so we can understand where I come from on this particular topic of the Middle East. Um, I was a student of the uh, 1960s. In the 1960s, we spoke about human beings as if they all, every human being is more or less the same. Everyone wants the same thing. They want a meal. They want a house. They want uh, to be happy. Um, the, the discipline that I'm in, socialist history, which is a combination of sociology, anthropology, and history, teaches us something different. And what we learn in my discipline, what I've been teaching for a long time, is that different groups are different one from another. Now, why do I mention this? Because, you know, we live in a world where some people hear the word different as an insult, and it's not. I use the word just to say that people are the result of a vast amount of uh, impacts, realms that have some sort of impact on them. It's a historical memory. It's the area you live in. It's your political leadership. All these things would make group A different from group B. Now, why do I say this is important? Because when I started Middle Eastern studies, I was doing African studies, and then I went into Middle Eastern studies. Uh, initially, I was a little bit shocked because all the lecturers said that the people of the Middle East are different from others. And I hadn't been brought up with this. But they were right. And I think what we have to understand is that when we're trying to understand what we call MENA, Middle East and North Africa, so that's the whole big picture area, MENA is a large area, we are talking about multi-leveled subcultures where one culture is different from another, not meaning that one culture is better than the other, but that's just the result of the various impacts that it had on them. Now, what we're talking about and what you'll see in my three lectures, and these are just case studies. Uh, we're going to do the Shia and the uh, Iranians today. The next one is the Syrian civil war, and the third one is Jordan. Each case study is somewhat different one from another. But there are also some commonalities. So what I'll speak about in two or three minutes is the commonalities of the region, then some of the differences, and then I'll focus directly on the Shia and the uh, people in Iran. But I want to tell you two events which had a, a, a tremendous effect on me in trying, in someone like myself coming from a British colony, a very politically correct British colony, to, uh, to, to really introduce me to the Middle East. And two little anecdotes. Uh, in January 1968, I'd then been in Israel just over six months, I went to an ulpan in Jerusalem, and a, a city ulpan because I'd uh, flunked out of the Hebrew University ulpan because I couldn't get ahead, so I had to do some more Hebrew studying. And uh, there were uh, Palestinian students from Bethlehem. And for me, that was a very important exposure, sitting in class, uh, Jewish students and Arab students studying Hebrew together. Fascinating. One discussion in particular had an impact on me. One of the young guys who I met, and we got on very well, uh, Bethlehem, as you know, is just very close to Jerusalem, and on many occasions I would meet them when I went into Bethlehem. Uh, one of the, we were having a discussion about the Six-Day War, and he told me the following. Israel didn't win the Six-Day War. So I said, excuse me, could you explain that? He said, because... I saw that American planes had arrived in Israel and they rubbed out the signs that it was an American plane and put the Israeli Air Force. And the country that won the Six-Day War was the United States. Now, I've studied this in detail and I would have disagreed with him. But he was saying something very important. 
And this is sensitive stuff, and I'm trying to say it as sensitively as I can. In societies where honor and dignity are the most important characteristics, what you say is different from what is said in the Western world. Now, he was not telling, he wasn't lying, but he was saying which made sense to him culturally. And why was it so important for me to listen to him? Because what he was basically saying, that if a little, tiny little Jewish state could have won a war against all the Arab neighbors, that would have said that the Arabs have no honor, no dignity, and have nothing. And therefore, he had to, as part of his cultural background, relate it to the events of the Six-Day War differently from me. I want to emphasize that he didn't lie, but he was part of his cultural background, and I am part of some of my cultural background. And it's relevant for yesterday and the day before. When President Trump said that no American soldiers were injured, and the Iranian side said at least 80 and maybe a few hundred, that is the world we live in. Two ways of looking at information. And I'm just putting something out very quickly, but in teaching Middle East classes, which I've done over the years, either to uh, Hebrew Union College students or to uh, MA, MA program at the Tel Aviv University for overseas students, very good program, um, it was very important for me to spend quite a long time in trying to get one's mind over this issue, how people look at similar events in very, very different ways. By the way, this is not unknown in history. If we look at the period of Napoleon, they once took eight famous historians and asked what happened during the period of Napoleon, and each of them wrote the story in a different way. So this is the world we live in. We live in a world of interpretation. And I will try and give my interpretation, but please listen to me critically, because it's my interpretation, and there are others. So that is really very, very much part of the Middle East. But at the same time, that young Palestinian guy, who was really very nice, we got on very well, but I often had to change my mindset to understand him. In 1982, I was in Lebanon, the first Lebanese war. Very early on in the Lebanese war, my particular unit, it was a, I was in communications at that time, we were sent into Lebanon. And then I found another side of the Arab world. I, in my Israeli uniform with a gun, became friendly with a Lebanese family. They had a little... Macaulay, if you know the Hebrew term, a little grocery store, tiny little grocery store. And I was in a particular job in the army where I'd, I'd be in a, a communications um, ha, little hut, a, a container, uh, for six hours, and then it was the turn for the people after me, and then I would have about 12 hours with nothing to do. So in the middle of the Lebanese war, I crossed the main road, by myself, in my uniform, with a gun, and became friendly with the Lebanon family. And the long and the sort of the relationship is this. We, we signed an agreement, the first agreement between Israel and Lebanon. <laughs> and the agreement was as follows. I would teach the two children, a seven-year-old boy and a nine-year-old girl, English, and they would give me warm Coca-Cola. <laughs> you decide who won. The point I'm making is that we're living in the strange world in the Middle East where sometimes it is deep political disagreement and tension and other times it's just regular people. So that is what I'm putting out at the beginning because I'm going to speak about the tough stuff. I'm going to speak about political stuff. I'm going to speak about national identity. But at the same time, it's always important for us to remember that with all what I'm saying, 
There are other components of existence in the Middle East. And you know what has not been written, but it will be written in the future, are the vast number of realms where Israelis have contact with people from countries who we are at war with. And you know, many years ago it came out that Israel and the Saudis had relations. People were shocked. But we've known we've had relation, different relations with the Saudis for how many years? And doctors and teachers and engineers and academics go to conferences around the world. And who do they like often meeting? Middle Eastern people. I won't go into the anecdotes because that would take up most of our session. So this is what I just want to place us, that our heads are in this very, very complex kind of situation where there are human relations and there are deep tensions one at the same time. Now, what do we have to understand about Iran? Iran is not a country only. Iran is the center of the Shia religious group. Within the world of Islam, there are many multi-level divisions. By the way, when I used to speak about this with my students, I speak about Christianity and Islam and Judaism, uh, whenever they began to ask the question, why are there so many divisions, I would say, look at the Jews as well, and that they could relax. <laughs> so um, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, complex world, massive. About 85% uh, more or less are Sunni. That's the majority group. The, the Sunni themselves are divided into certain subsections of which one of the divisions in the Sunni world are the four judicial camps, ways of thinking. So certain laws and certain behaviors are somewhat different. There are also more moderate Sunnis and more radical Sunnis. The Wahhabi of Saudi Arabia are very, whatever we're going to call them, religious, ultra-religious, uh, close-minded, you know, using the Western term. Um, but by and large, the Sunnis historically have been united uh, with the centrality of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. And Muhammad is seen by the Sunnis as their guy. There was a break-off group which came about in 680, a long time ago, the Battle of Karbala, whereby the grandson of Ali, sorry, I'm putting all these names in, who was the fourth caliph. You know, you have Muhammad, and then when Muhammad dies, you have the caliphs. I'm not even sure if I ever said properly in English. Uh, the caliphate, I think it is. You have the caliphate of four leaders, one after the other. And then the fourth one is Ali, who was married to Muhammad's daughter, and he's a cousin. And the Shiites say that Islam continues from Ali. And the Sunnis say the Islam comes from Muhammad and the first three caliphs. Now, it isn't an academic divide. It's a deep, deep divide. And in many situations, the Sunni, the majority, look at the Shiites as heretics. And that's a tough word. Okay, this is a very, very tough word. The difference between the Sunni and the Shias are the following. During Shia history, you can say Shia, Shia or Shiites, it doesn't really matter. During Shia history, there have been multi-level divisions. The Shia are a group who have been divided. And that's very important for us. Let us take modern Middle East. The Shia of Iran are different from the Shia of Lebanon. They go through different changes. And more so, more different from the Shia of Syria. Of, of Syria. The Syrian Shia are called Alawites. It's a break-off group, but the origins are Shia. This means that when we're talking about the Middle East, we have to be very careful and remember that the Shia, who and that's who the Iranian majority are, are themselves the leaders of very, very clearly divided groups. As a result of that, Iran sees itself as something much more than the, uh, the concept that we understand of what is a, a, a political leader. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini, who came into power in 1979, 
said very, very clearly, for me, he says, the Shia are not about Iran. The Shia are about all of the Middle East where other Shia people live. And they live in seven other different countries. Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, you name it, there are other different countries where they live. Iran therefore sees its role in life not only to defend Iran, but to basically feel responsible for the Shia wherever they live. Therefore, when we think of Iran, do not think of a country. It's a country. But Iran, in the mind of the Shia clergy, are really responsible for this very, very spread out group of their members. And they feel a deep responsibility for them. That is why Iran is very active in Lebanon with Hezbollah. And that's why Iran is very active in Iraq, southern Iraq. 55% of all Iraqi citizens are Shia. They're a majority group there. And that is why Iran, from their perspective, has to be what we would call in our own Western language, imperialists. They take over areas. In their mind, they're not imperialists. That's the Western way of looking at them. In their mind, they are responsible for the Shia minority group wherever they live. This is terribly important to understand what's going on at the moment. And the truth is that Western observers don't really know what I'm talking about. And why do I know? Because in Israel, for many years, I was meeting senators and people from the Congress, and I'll try to tell them a little bit about the divisions, and they said, don't fill us with detail, okay? Give us overview. Overview doesn't work in the Middle East, because it's this complex society where things are looked at in a very, very different way. By the way, let me make a very tough comment. If the Christian world cared about the Christians of the Middle East, like the Muslim world cares about the issues of the Muslims, the Christians would be in a good position. And they're in a miserable position because the societies understand their members in different kind of ways. Let me try and take some of the central issues of, the, uh, of what Iran is about. The Iranians have an amazing historical background. They see themselves as a kind of a chosen people. Their history is remarkable. They see themselves, by the way, Iranians and not Arabs, okay? They were originally Persians, but in the 1930s, 1940s, they call themselves Iranians. And they see themselves as the absolute elite. I don't want to go too much into the nitty-gritty of history, but to basically say that by the 1930s and 40s, you have the rise of the Shah, the Shah the father and the Shah the son. The Shah the son kicked out of power in uh, 1979. And what happened during that period? And this is one of the two elements of crisis which the contemporary Iranian government still feels it's suffering from. The Shahs were modernists. The Shahs looked at traditional religion and looked at what's going on in the world and said, we have to change. We have to move into other ways of looking at the world. And at the moment they made that decision, they basically said to the clergy, who until then had been the crucial underpinning of Iranian society, they said to the clergy essentially that you're a marginal group, you're not important, and we know that when you marginalize groups, it, can, it, it never ends because the anger and the fear becomes deeply embedded, and we know this very much from Iranian history. So the, the Shah uh, uh, went to become a modern, modernist. Uh, it changed the nature of women. Now, I taught a course for 25 years uh, on women in Arab society at Tel Aviv University. Very popular course, by the way, 
because after the title Women in Arab Society, there was a colon, and it said analysis of movies. <laughs> so that just got about every student on campus. They didn't care about anything. They wanted to come and watch movies. So uh, I had lots of students. But the, the, the issue was, it was very, very clear. And I, took, I, I started teaching the course because in traditional Arab society, traditional Muslim society, the most sensitive issue is actually not theology, but the role of the women. That's the core issue. And what the Shahs did without consulting the clergy was to basically say, it's good for Iran if we advance women. It's good for Iran if we even tell them that traditional headdress or traditional clothing is no longer required. They did something, for any of you who know Turkish history, very, very, very similar to Turkey. Two similar situations, both societies wanting to modernize themselves. The best way to modernize a traditional society is to change the status of the women. It's a 100% success story. But it caused tremendous tension within the society. So the first level of anger, and, and Iran is filled with deep anger, the first level of anger isn't as we think against America, per se. It's against modernity. Modernity is the concept which destroyed Iranian society. Then there was another issue. During the Second World War, and this was only the first of many occasions, the Iranian government at that time allied itself with the, with the Axis, with the, with the Nazis. The British and the Russians were angry, and so they deposed the Shah, the father, and allowed the son to come in. I could spend about half an hour, which I certainly won't do, describing the amount of situations from a, an Iranian perspective when outside interference got into the kishkas, into the gut of Iranian society. Now, the Iranians are very proud, very proud of their history. They see themselves better than these Westerners. And here the Western world came in and still comes in. You see, I'm not a pro-Iranian, but I have to get into their minds. In their minds, they believe that from the 1940s onward until today, those Western imperialists for whom they feel have little culture, have got involved in the internal aspects of Iranian society. These are the two fundamental issues which bug the Iranians until today. On the one hand, as I said, modernization, which has within it a tremendous women, a change of women, and the other, this very, very ongoing phenomenon of different countries. Sometimes it was the British and sometimes it was the Russian. And in more modern times, it's perceived as the Americans getting involved. They really feel they have within them a tremendous anger. Now with the, the, the son, the Shah. He was a modern leader. But in 1973, with the uh, uh, rise of oil price, the Shah started spending vast amounts of money celebrating the historical story of the Iranian people. It led to inflation. It led to mass corruption. And as the people started to get angry, the Shah developed one of the cruelest uh, 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 underground um, uh, uh, FBI, I'm trying to think of what word would be in English, uh, secret police, sorry, not, not FBI, is different, secret police, called SAVAK. The, the secret, you know, FBI is a nice group, different from SAVAK. SAVAK was a ghastly, ghastly underground police force hand, with hundreds of thousands of spies. By the way, the only comparison is really to see what happened in, in uh, the communist world. You see it in, in East Germany and places like that. Terrible, terrible, cruel uh, uh, organization which totally strangled the Iranian people under the auspices of this is what modernity is about. 
This is what the great Western world is about. So we have to understand that from an Iranian perspective, and we're talking essentially about the less educated population, from the Iranian perspective, modernity, freedom for women, alienation of the clergy, were deeply problematic issues, and that is the reason why 1979, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in, in Paris at the time, who had been sending taped messages, which were very, very popular, when he comes back to, uh, to Iran, he is welcomed by the masses, because they believed at that time Anything that had been in the past was ghastly, and their mind rang with the savak in particular, and this would be a new world. Little did they realize that in about two years, this new regime was no different from the other. You have what is called the comites, these people, these men who would go around looking, I won't go into the ghastly stories, go around and look at women with makeup on them or showing too much hair or whatever else it was, absolutely horrendous. What's happening at that time in Iranian society? Now, by the way, a radical change, there is nothing more dangerous than revolutions, by the way, because revolutions build levels of expectation. I'm in favor of change, by the way, great believer in change. The uh, revolutions are very, very problematic because they often don't have infrastructures which, which can control the changing kind of environment. And what you have is with the uh, rising of the Ayatollah was a tremendous, tremendous shock to the Iranian middle class. And the Iranian middle class realizing they couldn't live in Iran, left. Between two and four million of the most educated people in Iran left Iran because they then realized that although they thought the Shah was terrible, the Iranian clergy was much worse. I've met some of those two to four million, seven of them, somewhat not a representative figure. We Israelis meet them. We meet them in Europe. And one very, very interesting discussion I had, which was by chance, I was in a little restaurant on the, um, on the main uh, boulevard of, of Budapest, a lovely area. I walked into a little uh, cafe there. I speak to the guy, kind of had an idea more or less, knew kind of where he was from. He kind of knew more or less where I was. And we had a four or five hour discussion one of the most interesting discussions I've ever had. And he gave me the story of the Iranian emigres who live around the world, who live in, in a sense of tension, because on the one hand, they feel they have to support their country, and on the other hand, that country isn't the country that they want. Now, why is that important? Because, you know, in all the societies... What happens really in a society, and I know this sounds very anti-democratic, but societies are actually run by the top 7% of a society. They are the people who, do, who decide what a society really is. I know it doesn't sound democratic, but mark my words, that's what it is. I can certainly define that in Israel. I can locate the 7% and I can say that Israel, as it is today, is that top 7%, and it's almost a global phenomenon. In some countries, by the way, it's smaller. But let's take the 7%. That group of people had left Iran, which handed over the power increasingly to the uh, 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 radical uh, clerical people. Now, what happened in Iran? What was the, the development? As time went by, the economic situation in Iran has declined. And therefore, you have multi-level revolutions. You have it in 2009, you have it in 2011, and we saw it in very, very powerful senses, 2019, November 2019, an uprising of that kind of 7% because they grow up, tended to be young people, tended to be well-educated people, tended to be people who didn't want to leave Iran, like the two to four million who had left 20 or 30 years earlier, 
and basically wanted to try and once again bring about modernity in a country which had rejected modernity. What am I basically saying? Within Iranian society, there is that tremendous sense of frustration and anger. And anger is part of the human essence. But anger, when you anger, your anger is your own fault, becomes much more problematic. So how have the Iranians dealt with this anger? Firstly, let's take the contemporary reality. The first thing that we find with Iranian society is that although they have unbelievable amount of natural gas and crude oil, half the world's natural gas is in Iran. About approximately one-third of the world's uh, crude oil is in Iran. This is a country which has the potential of being one of the most successful countries in the world, and yet vast numbers of people are experiencing massive decline in their standard of living. Now, this is very, very problematic because it's based on expectations. If you expect your country to be viable, powerful, accepted in the world, and what you're finding is exactly the opposite, that's very problematic. The other issue, the Iranians are convinced that if other countries are allowed to have nuclear uh, um, uh, equipment to be able to develop a nuclear bomb, why aren't they? And they cannot understand, they feel that they are the victims of the Western world, because they know that nuclear developments are carrying on in India and, and uh, uh, um, Pakistan. They know what Israel's got in the realm of uh, nuclear uh, equipment. Um, and this makes them very, very angry. They actually feel that they are the victims. Now, from the Western world, we think they're the perpetrators. They're the bad ones. But you see, I think the essence of understanding history is to understand it from the mind of the people who one is talking about. So they live in this situation of tremendous frustration. So what have they done with their various levels of frustration? And I've only mentioned a few. They take on this other role, which is the role not of Iran as being the center of their existence, but Iran is being the representative of all the Shiites. But something happened in between. And that was a very, very problematic war between Iraq, which is a country which has 55% of its population as Shiites, Arab Shiites, against Iran, which is a Shiite country, between 1980 and 1988, when here was a very complex reality where the Iranians found that Iraq, under Saddam Hussein, with a Shiite majority, 55%, had brought about the death of approximately one million people, one million Iranians in that war. What I'm trying to explain is this, this whole situation of the Iranians being the leaders and the representatives of the Shiites becomes very confusing because from their perspective, Iraq should be an ally of Iran. And this particular ally was, uh, uh, was at war with them, a ghastly war. All wars are ghastly. But this war in particular was just about one of uh, the worst. So the Iranians are trying to grapple with this issue. And the moment, what they are at the moment, is the combination of the following three or four components. If one looks at the kind of macro picture of, of what's happening uh, in Iran at the moment. Firstly, they've gone back to the old model that we really have to pull ourselves together as Shiites. Let's try and take the case studies of where they try to do it. The first and most successful case study for them is Lebanon. A few comments about Lebanon, I'm sure some of you are aware of it. Lebanon is one of the most heterogeneous countries that I know. It's got Sunnis and Shi'is, who are more or less the same figure. You have the Druze, and then you have about seven different Christian groups. 
Just let me tell you a small anecdote on the complexity. I once had a meeting in Prague many years ago, which had been set up by some friends, with a Christian Lebanese woman. And I thought she was one, a particular group of Christians. So without realizing it, she belonged to another group. So trying to be politically correct, I praise her in terms of what her particular Christian group was doing until she almost dropped the wine glass that she was holding and reminded me that she didn't come from that village but from another village and that was a totally different Christian group. And that, I made a big faux pas. I had to apologize for every three minutes for the next hour. The complexity of, of uh, uh, Lebanon is, is unbelievable. I spent, as I mentioned earlier, I spent time there uh, in, in the first Lebanon war. Now, what happened in, in Lebanon was very interesting. In Lebanon, the Shia were the underdog. Traditionally speaking, in many Arab countries, the Shia are the rural people, less educated. Sunni, by and large, not totally, are urban people. Christians, by and large, urban people. So the Shia of Lebanon were the underdogs. And therefore, Iran looked at Lebanon and said, this is an ideal population that will become loyal to us. And that's what happened. And the development of Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is a tremendous threat to Israel, is really part of this ongoing attempt by the Iranians to go back to the role which historically they feel has been theirs, which among other things is to regain what I said at the beginning of my presentation, honor and pride. And they did it in Lebanon. Hezbollah, Nasrallah, is a very, very powerful force. It is well organized, but we're beginning to see the breaking of the model. What's the breaking of the model? In the last three months, the belief that we had that the Hezbollah was the controlling force, by the way, they have the support of certain Christian factions who, because they, realism and survival is the essence of the Middle East, not always ideology or theology, but there's been a breaking down of the power of Hezbollah. We've seen it on the streets, corruption in Lebanon, poor political uh, um, administration, uh, declining economy. We've begun to see Shia in Lebanon against Iran. This is a tremendous shock to Iran because they feel that they've been the patrons of the Hezbollah and the patrons of the Shias. In Iraq, we find exactly the same thing. What we find in Iraq, going back to the figure, that the majority Iraqis who are 55%, in the last few months we've seen it, once again for reasons of, of corruption and, and reasons of economic decline, what we've seen in, in Iraq is exactly the same. Shiites on the streets of the southern cities of Iraq have been demonstrating against Iran. And so this is yet another shock. Now, there have been certain Shia gains, but minimal. In the case of Saudi Arabia, 15% of all Saudis are Shia. They were very marginal. They were very, uh, uh, very much the underdog of Saudi society. Their position is slightly improved. But that's small-time stuff. So what has Iran done? Well, Iran at the moment is fighting for its historical position in the Middle East. And although we in the Western world believe it's something against America, which it is, but from Iranian aspect, it's something much harsher and much more complicated than that. Because what's actually happening is that the Iranians who saw themselves getting to the top and seeing and believing that on the military level, they had enough power to control the Middle East, have found in the last week or two that they're not all that powerful. And it's possible to wipe out Soleimani, the number two of Iranian society. 
and the world doesn't even care all that much about it. What we're therefore facing is something from an Iranian aspect is very problematic. There's another problem which the Iranians are beginning to find. Iranian politics is divided by two forces. The supreme leader, who has the revolutionary guards, okay, that's a, I've been studying revolutionary guards for years. Revolutionary guards control about one third of the Iranian economy. The senior leader, the clerical, the top of the clergy, and the Iranian revolutionary guards had tremendous amount of power. They were considered the most important group. And suddenly, overnight, their leader is knocked off. So they're in a tremendous crisis on that level. And the other crisis against the supreme leader is the president, Rafsanjani, or, or, or Khatami, or, or whoever it is. All of them, there have been four or five of them over the years. Whichever president it is, the president stands for normal, regular living. The supreme leader stands for a religious society. There are ongoing tensions between those two leaders. Supreme leader has more power than the president, but the president also has power. So that's another issue. And the third issue I mentioned a moment ago was that the young students of Tehran, who in 1979 had welcomed Khomeini, those young students who had been involved in the capturing of the American hostages for some 440 days, those students now seem to be in the opposition. So as I conclude, what have I really been trying to say? I've been trying to say that if we want to make sense of what's going on, we have to look at it from two perspectives, like so many things in life. We have to look at it the perspective of what's good for our side. And there's no doubt about it that Israel and America are totally in the same situation. It isn't only the Israeli prime minister, but the head of the opposition, Benny Gantz, who say exactly the same things in terms of Iran, that Iran and the Shiites are a major threat to the state of Israel. And it's a good moment of Israeli history, knowing some of our earlier history, to have a, a big country on our side. But the, we also have to understand, if we're going to try and move forward in looking at what could happen, we have to understand that we, what we're dealing with in terms of the Iranians. I want to conclude with the most important lesson I've ever heard, which I mentioned at my first session. I'm a social historian. And when I went many years ago to the head of the department and I said, in Hebrew, I only know the present and the past. And then I said, I don't know the future tense. He said, don't worry, you're an historian and you don't have to know about the future. <laughs> so if you ask me what I think is going to happen and you're welcome to ask me, I must also tell you that I've been listening to the radio, I've been reading as much as I can uh, in the last week or so, but to be honest, none of us, even the most astute Iranian experts, and Israel has four or five who are absolutely outstanding, without doubt, I think, they, I think to be honest, I know it's a, it sounds strange, but I think the Israeli academics on Middle East are actually the best in the world. Many of them come out of the army. So they don't come out of academia, they're in academia as well, but they've come out of the intelligence services of the army, and therefore they've been deeply, deeply imbibed with deep understanding of, of the Middle East. Uh, even there, um, there are very few voices that I'm hearing where they actually know or can predict what is going to happen. But if you want, ask me. But I must say that I don't really know what might happen. Thank you very much. Please, I'll, I'll hand over the mic because then everyone can hear. Iran has been one of the principal antagonists of Israel, um, much more so recently than, say, Saudi Arabia was decades ago. Um, my understanding is the Palestinian population is largely Sunni. 
Is this because of their trying to maintain their political position in the region? Is it because of some theological issue? And why, why is Iran so focused on Israel more so than many of the Sunni countries? Well, uh, terrific question. Thank you so much. Um, let's understand exactly where Iran is. I Iran bombed 50% of the oil resources of Saudi Arabia. So this really shows that while Israel is a tremendous focus, it's also they're very much out to get the, the, the Saudis as well. Um, so their, their, their anger and frustration is with the Saudis as well. In terms of the Palestinians, um, it bring, it's another very kind of issue, strange issue. Um, the, the Palestinians were very sad uh, when Soleimani was, uh, was, was wiped out. The Egyptians were furious with the Palestinians. Because as you say correctly, the Palestinians are Sunni. So why are, you, why are you changing the side? Palestinians are a frustrated group. I've got two sessions on the Palestinians, which I'll try and in those sessions explain what's going on. But basically what's happened with Israel is the following. And I think it's true not only of Iran, but of, any, of many other countries. Basically you can say anything you want against Israel with almost no implications. And I think it's not only true of Iran, but I think it's true of many other groups in the world. Uh, you know, if I wanted to be an anti-Semite and get away with it, I'd be an anti-Semite on the Jewish issue. If I was anti-Chinese, I think things might be tough, uh, you know, or, or anti-Russia. By the way, you know, when you look at it, it's, it's a ludicrous world we're living in. So I, th I think what it is is, firstly, you know, it's an easy object. Secondly, we have to remember... Israel is always identified with America. It's easier to criticize and attack Israel on one level or the other, which in a sense is the same as attacking the United States, but not as direct. So it's got a certain political correctness uh, about it. And I think the third reason is, is the region we're in. Uh, to, uh, to attack America, if, if that's what one thinks about, it's to attack uh, the uh, 25 odd thousand American service people who are in the Middle East. Uh, but it's not to attack America per se. When you talk about attacking Israel, you're talking about attacking Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So it's much more vision and much clearer. And the hate against Israel, so much as... Uh, more, I think, than the hate against America, is therefore a group bonding phenomenon as far as, the, as far as the range are concerned. You know, societies in crisis have to find a common goal. And the, the, the Jewish issue, the Israeli issue, is a tremendous unifier. We have to just add one other word which I haven't mentioned. In the Middle East, there's the concept of the demi. I'm, I'm sure many of you know the concept of the demi. Uh, the, uh, Islam has three levels. They have the chosen people, uh, the people of Muhammad, uh, which says uh, Muhammad is the last and greatest of the prophets. Then you have the demis, who are the Christians and the Jews. And then you have the infidels. That's the understanding of the world. Their understanding of the demis is essentially theologically that the dimmies are all okay if, unless they think they're, they're powerful, unless they become too successful. Now, the Christians in the Middle East are very weak. There's no Christian country. Lebanon is no longer a Christian country. So they're, they're not a force. The fact that the smallest dimmy group, 0.2% of the world, not only have their own country, but win wars is something which, from a theological perspective, uh, Islam finds it very, very hard to deal with. So I think you put all those issues into the salad bowl, I think that essentially explains why, why uh, the attitude to Israel is as it is. By the way, I personally believe, it's my own view, you don't have to accept it, uh, it just doesn't really matter whether Israel is strong or weak. It doesn't really matter whether Israel is in border A or border B. It's not really about that. It's the concept that in 1948, this little group of people, this minor, minor group of people, many of them Holocaust survivors, established their own state is a form of humiliation that I think we're going to have to live with for in the coming generations. And I think really it's part of all that which explains the, uh, the whole issue of how Israel's looked at. I'll just take a question here. Thank you. Just to follow up that 
question. Um, Israel had um, uh, very good relations uh, in defense and other technology-related things and also foreign relations with the Shah. And including, I have been told, and I don't know whether this is true and this is my question, that they helped the Shah get the Savak organized. And I'm wondering whether that is A, true, and B, if it is, how much that is contributing to the Iranian view. Excellent point. Thank you. Yes, Israel was involved. Absolutely. Israel has been involved with uh, Uganda, uh, Idi Amin. Um, so it's true. Uh, Israel, at a certain time, having very little to sell, sold whatever it could. And, you know, uh, military and security concepts were part of it. By the way, Israel wasn't the only country involved in the Savak. There were many other Western countries. But once again, it's always good to pick on the little guy. So it, 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 you kind of narrow down the story to the one, and when you look at it, America had, inter, at a certain time, Russia was involved, Britain was involved, France was involved, and among all those, Israel was involved as well. And it is part of the equation as well, and thank you very much. Yes. In the context of your statement that the Iranians are not Arabs, just for clarification, can you define Arab? This goes into a good course on anthropology. Um, they're ethnic and different, uh, different ethnic and different uh, religious uh, definitions. Um, the Arab essentially comes from the nomadic group of Saudi Arabia. And theoretically, the people who somehow come out of that group, okay, originally starting there and then over the years spreading around, intermarrying with local groups, but the Arab essence is the supreme essence. That gives us the definition of what an Arab is, but it's a very uh, multi-level definition. Um, like the Jews are not Arabs, uh, they come, have a different religion and different historical ethnic background, they are a different group. And the Iranians have always seen themselves as essentially as a different isolated group who by definition are not the same as the majority in the Middle East but different, somewhat like the Turks. So there are basically three large non-Arab groups in the Middle East, Turkey, Iran, and Israel. And then there are also some smaller groups, but they are actually less important. So sometimes it's kind of a very vague definition of interpretation. It's also interpretation. But an Iranian, when you speak to an Iranian, they have their own historical memory, which is not directly tied up with the Saudi Arabian mythology. So that's really what it is, and it's exactly the same with the Turks. The Turks are a different ethnic group. We, we go to Turkey and we see pretty clearly that they're, that they're not Arabs. But there's blurring over of all these issues, and how people define themselves, you know, in the modern world, is a, there's, it's, there's overlaps. But it's essentially how groups understand themselves historically, the division of historical groups. And it's also very complex, because sometimes you would think a group would... Uh, would to be prepared to define themselves as Arabs, but don't. The Kurds, for example. The Kurds are very proud of their, their tribal background. So they could have blurred into just being regular Arabs, but they're not. They retained their ethnic Kurdish identity because it was good for them. It could have happened in history that they would have just become part of the Arab group. So this is really the, the decision of various groups to retain identity, which means you don't become part of others. I know it's a very blurred sort of answer, but it's probably the best that I... I used to give a 101 anthropology, but maybe I've forgotten some of the things. <laughs> but I think that's what it's uh, really all about. Do you want to ask a question? No. Okay. We have seen uh, in, the in the news report that Jews went to Suleimani's family to convey their... Which raises the question, what really is the amount, number, and position of Jews in, your, uh, in Iran? Jews through history have survived by being politically astute. And they're politically astute. Something between seven and 10,000 at the maximum. It's not always quite known, but it's a relatively small number. And when those Jews went 
to express regret at the assassination of Soleimani. It's purely a way of surviving. Right through history you find it, by the way. It's a, it's a role of minority groups who are trying to survive in difficult situations have to play a very, very sophisticated political game. We find it all through the uh, Middle East, by the way. The small Jewish communities at various times have always tried to identify to receive the support of the government, whichever government it is, and this is really just one of the cases. It's a, it's a relatively small group. By the way, as far as I understand, the Jews of Iran are not harmed. They're uh, protected by the authorities in one way or the other. It sounds contradictory, but uh, it is clear that the Iranian government sees those groups as maybe important for the Iranian economy, albeit a small group. They're very well educated, uh, very global, and maybe it's also the interests of Iran to allow that group just to sort of function and, and do uh, pretty much uh, what they want. Yeah, sorry, Abdul. It's my daily sport. To back up a little bit, I never really understood why Iran and Iraq were at war, and particularly for eight years. What was the purpose of that war? To answer that question, the short version is, think of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein wanted to be the ultimate ruler. There are masses of moments of Middle Eastern history where rulers said, I don't just want to rule over who I'm ruling, I want to rule over others. Now, the reason why that particular uh, war was important for Saddam Hussein, he, um, uh, he, he, was, he was in a difficult situation. Uh, um, in the north, there was the Kurdish group. About 20% of Iraqi society are Kurds, and they were very restless. In the south were the Shiites, Shiite Arabs, who were very restless. Saddam Hussein felt that by, dis by taking over Iran, he would therefore be able to control not only his local population, but become the master of a whole uh, region. Remember, Iran is a very rich country. So when you take over Iran, you're taking over this uh, gas uh, and this crude oil, and that means that Saddam Hussein, who very much saw himself as the, as the leader of the Middle East. I mean, we've had many cases. Abdel Nasser of Egypt was very kind of similar. So this is kind of one of the moments when Saddam Hussein uh, tried to do that. It was absolutely a disaster for both countries. There's no doubt about it that both countries lost. But this is really what's, what's happening. By the way, we have a new phenomenon which is very similar, and that's Erdogan of Turkey. Erdogan of Turkey doesn't want to just be the king of Turkey. He wants to be the king of much more, and therefore he's now sending his forces to Libya to support the weaker government faction of Libya, and that's only part of the process. So this is what we have. We're still in the Middle East in a very confusing moment of history where borders are not well defined, that we think borders are borders, but borders are question marks. And whereas in Europe, it took many, many centuries to actually decide to respect the border of one country or another, the Middle East isn't at that stage. And so therefore, going over borders is an accepted activity that we find within the Middle East. So that is it's kind of a different moment, a different way of looking at the world. And I think, uh, to be honest, I think we're not at the end of the story yet. So there's going to be, I think, you know, in the generations to come, many, many case studies of uh, different leaders take, looking at the region in a different kind of way, which is supranational, not only your country, but other countries around you as well. So that's our moment in the Middle East as well. Just before you take over, I hope today hasn't been too confusing. Uh, it's, 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 I, I want to tell you, this is a tough, a tough job for me. So... I hope, there, I hope there has been clarity. I must just say that I put into what I said today what I normally do in about 12 hours. So if I didn't say all the things that I should have said, you have my apologies, but there was a good reason. I look forward to meeting you when we discuss the Syrian civil war uh, next week. Thank you very much. Uh, just uh... 
A quick note. Uh, what's in the handout that you, oh, that you included for people? The handout, good, thank you so much. The handout that I, I had for this particular session is very different. It's a handout, it's in your booklet, by the way. Uh, it's, a, it's a different kind. It's totally about women in Iran. And the reason I mention it is that, as I said earlier, the women issue is extremely important. There is a women liberation movement which exists in Iran, and the articles that I had there it was just about the best that I could get from an Iranian perspective to say, although we women are not really out there, and when you look at their, their garb, you know, you kind of think, well, these people are sort of, you know, not, not what you'd expect. But in many, many Arab countries, and it was part of the, the course that I used to give, there is a very impressive women's movement which slowly but surely is within the constraints of the uh, society, try to move the, the country in a new direction. So it was one of the case studies, it's, I think it's the only one of all the, the lectures I've given, where I said, well, let us also look at the women's story. And that, that is the uh, text that you have. It, yes. If you... Um if you didn't get a handout and you're a CSP member, just email me and I will get you a handout. Okay, yes, well, you, you know. Okay, so with that, uh, tomorrow night at um, Shira Malot, Israel in the toughest neighborhood in the world, Shabbat morning, Israel, a startup nation at Temple Beth Shalom, followed by the Israel Defense Forces and, and its impact on society at Temple Beth Tikva, and then Sunday, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu. So lots more to do on the first week of Paul Lips in Orange County. Have a great day and a great Shabbos. Thank you.